Hi, this is Belinda Carlisle, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Welcome to Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party, a Pantheon Podcast. Music, culture, conversation, and good old-fashioned rock and roll. So now, I give you Miss Pamela and her pajama party. Hello, dolls. This is Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party, and welcome to my wonderful event today. I suppose I should tell you, since most people think I'm a groupie, and I am, what a groupie means. It just means someone who loves music and wants to be around the musicians who make it, and that is it. It's had such a bad reputation through the years, and it was a slur for many years. I guess it still is, but, you know, F it, because I am a groupie, and I love myself. I do a lot of rock tours. Well, right now I can't do them. But uh, as soon as the COVID's over, I'm going to start them up again. And uh, I do all kinds of things. And what, what else do I do? I teach women's writing workshops. And I'm doing them on Zoom now. So I have a new workshop. So please, you know, check it out and join us to write. And, you know, we do a lot of podcasts here at Pantheon. 40, I guess, is our big new number. So tune into all of them. You've got plenty of time. And listen to everybody's, it's all about music, so that's the most important thing there is. And anyway, dolls, tell a friend about Pantheon Podcasts, okay? Mwah! Today, dolls, I have a very good friend of mine joining us on the patio. I'm sure you can hear the bird song, it's really lovely. I'm so happy to have a patio, I can have guests out here and do my show. Um, Tony Gilkison. Tony Gilkison is one of my favorite, favorite ever guitar players. He was in X for 10 years. He was a founding member of Lone Justice, one of my favorite like alternative country bands, if you have to call it something. And he played with my ex-boyfriend, Mike Stinson, who I hope you've listened to that podcast already. He played with him for many years too. And that's how I discovered him. He's just brilliant, man. I could safely say he's my favorite living guitar player, which is a very big deal, because Hendrix is my, you know, non-living favorite guitar player, (laughs) and Tony is so good. Anyway, I'm very happy to welcome him today. Yay! Tony Gilkison!
Hi, Tony. Hi, Pamela. I wish I could hug you so much. I know. I know. I've always felt a real kindred vibe with you. Absolutely. From minute one. Well, I've always called you my third sister. I know. He's called me that. It makes me so happy. His sister. I love it so much. Well, the first time I saw you was with Stinson. I hadn't seen you play before. So I was completely mesmerized, you know, by your playing. Sometimes I would just stand in front of you and, like, marvel like I was in, in, in another universe. It's so good! Thank you, Pamela. <laughs> you know you're good, right? Not all the time, uh, uh, but... Uh, I mean, certainly I love hearing that kind of stuff. Well, you know you're like an innovative guitarist, that other guitarists feel incredibly good vibes about. Well, that's nice to know. It, it, you, you saw me play with Mike, and, and Mike's music uh, was an inspiration for me because it, it was a style of music that I hadn't played in so long. I mean, the, the last time I had really, really played honky-tonk music and, and really uh, traditional country music was in the late 70s. And so it was like uh, putting on a an old hat, a comfortable old hat, and, and it took a while to kind of readjust from because of all the other types of music I had been playing. But it was it was a process that I, I fell in love with, you know. I mean, it was it was such a fun uh, period of time for me doing that. And then soon after, you started recording your own albums. Your own music in that same vein seems kind of right. It, That's kind of true. Yeah. Well, I had one CD that that I had put out before, um, and that yeah, that wasn't it wasn't really kind of uh, hillbilly oriented. And then I put out a second one, and that more or less was yeah. In fact, mm -hmm. I did one of Mike's songs on that record. Which song? Uh, Worthless. Oh yeah, oh, such a great song. Yeah. Well, your family obviously is incredibly musical. Your mom and dad both, right? Uh, just dad. Oh, I thought your mom was musical. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, I have a sister, Eliza. Yes, of course. Uh, Eliza Eliza Gilkison is his sister and very renowned singer-songwriter herself. And your yeah. dad worked for Disney and wrote music for Disney or what what all did he do? He was originally a folk singer. Oh. Came out here in the late 40s. Um, hung out with all the uh, Topanga Canyon leftist folk singers. And uh, my mother didn't approve of that, so they ended up moving to South Pasadena, and, and that's where I lived until I was 12 years old. Okay. Now your mom didn't approve, huh? No, my mom was... Pretty traditional. She didn't. She didn't uh, want her kids in the company of radical musicians. So, <laughs> and then, then <laughs> so, they became radical musicians. Uh, that's very, right. Of course, we just immediately <laughs> gravitated towards radical musicians. Yes. There's a so, lesson in there, mom. So d your dad had a normal job too, a regular job besides being a folk singer, musician, and all that. No, he was a no. songwriter. He had oh. a he had a good run. 
You know, he, he wrote songs that other people did, and they they were hit records. So that that gave him an income in the lean years, because he had lean years. Yeah. And then once he got, he was in a band called the Easy Riders. And then once they split up, he got work with Disney. Uh huh. And wrote some music for some of Disney's movies. What? I mean, you know, I'm a <laughs> Disney nut. Oh yeah. Oh, oh my God. My big dream. It's, I know people think this is sick. Was to sleep with Mickey Mouse. And there's still time. <laughs> One of my boyfriends, who will remain nameless, knew someone who worked at Disneyland and could get the costume for us to utilize. <laughs> and when it came right down to it, he just wouldn't do it. Uh, well, that must have been very frustrating. <laughs> it, it was. You know, I, I can picture it. Anyway, I'm a big Disney nut all my life. Went to Disneyland in 56. So, he, so that means he wrote early... The early music. Yeah, he wrote. It started in '63. He wrote uh, the Bare Necessities, and, and then he wrote uh, stuff for. Wow, uh, that's so uh, cool! I know that song so well. The Aristocats and huh. some other TV stuff. Uh huh. Fantastic. So when did you start playing? And and Eliza, she's older than you or younger? She's two years older than me. Older. Okay. You guys have been playing music a long time. Yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> so what, did you? Did she start playing music first, or you? She did. Uh, I was off. I was, you know, chasing lizards and all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> in Pasadena. In pa Pasadena, Pasadena lizards. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I uh, you know, my dad was a folk singer, as I remember him being a folk singer and, and I have loved folk music and I still do love folk music but uh, I didn't really get the bite for music until uh, gosh I guess somewhere in the mid 60s where I started to dabble and, and then I played drums hmm. and then switched over to guitar but folk music was not really a, the, the primary motivator for me to get into music so it was you know, it was rhythm and blues and rock and roll mm -hmm. that really mm -hmm. just kind of. Mm -hmm. And what about Eliza? She. Eliza, right? you know, always really. She's like you. She's a Virgo. She's, uh, you know, home centric, uh, and uh, takes family very very seriously, and is and has always been a committed folky. You know. Yeah. That's been her bag. Uh -huh. She's flirted with other styles. But it always really comes back down to folk music for her. Her bag. It's her bag. It's such a great it, term. I haven't heard that one in a while. <laughs> it was her bag, man. That was even pre-hippie. That was like a beat saying, right? Well, I reckon it was, <laughs> yeah. But I love the old terms so much. I'm, I'm hopelessly stuck in the old terms. Cause yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are a certain age. Huh? We're we're a certain age. I'm actually four years older than you. Yeah. Wow. Well, I tell my friends I'm 67, but I have the body of a 63-year-old. <laughs> That's good. 
I think I'm going to use that. I'm 71, but I have a body of a 68-year-old. <laughs> that sounds really good to me. <laughs> one of my favorite songs you do is one of your dad's. And I was wondering if you would sing that for us, Man About Town. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You would? Yeah, of course. Yay! It's one of my favorites. Um, so tell me about that song before you do it. You know, I honestly don't know what motivated him to sing that song. I, I, I recorded it after he died. I yeah. never had a chance to pick his brain, but it was wow. one he, he wrote in the really early days. And early days meaning probably very early 50s or late 40s. Yeah, it's incredibly moody and it tells a story almost of a male escort or something. Yeah, a gigolo. Yeah, yeah a gigolo, right. Yeah. So cool. Well, you know, we come from a long line of gigolos. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's the common thread that has run back all the way to the revolution. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like your mom, though, ruled the roost a little bit since she got your dad to move away from that trendy Topanga Canyon. Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. He yeah. wanted to live in Topanga. He wanted yeah. that kind of... Uh, Bohemian vibe? Uh, more ranch-style oh. kind of thing. He wanted to have animals, and, mm -hmm. and he enjoyed the company and, and the, his drinking buddies. He... There was a guy named Rich Dare who, I don't know if you remember, the, there was a restaurant called the Discovery Inn in Topanga. Yes. And it, Well, that was started by a guy named Rich Dare who was uh, my father's writing and singing partner along with another guy named Frank Miller. Oh, and fantastic. they were all based out of Topanga. And all their kids were really kind of raised up in that kind of bohemian lifestyle. And yeah, that was what my, I guess my father really would have preferred, but uh, yeah, mom laid the law down. Yeah, like a lot of ladies do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's hear that song. Sure. Yay. Yes, Man About Town. You know, I, I, you had mentioned that uh, he did it like a... Sort of like a little uh, minor key waltz. So, so, so that was the only thing that I really switched around on. You do it in a more sultry way. Each night I wander the evening away, searching for pleasures that never can stay. Wine on the table in some cabaret Candles that burn with the time Man about town Little black book filled with numbers Each night a new love Never a true love I'm just a man about town Parties and nightclubs and girls in a show 
These are the places, the people I know. Hey, shining faces that keep on going. All over man It's a blessing. I'm sitting here in my beautiful patio getting a private concert by one of my very favorite musicians. How great is that? No, I'm lucky. I'm a lucky bitch. Well, thank you. I, I haven't played that song in a while. It's a fun one to sing. Oh, <coughs> and it, it, does it evoke your dad when you say, I mean, I, no, I know he didn't. Not really. It doesn't evoke him because uh, uh, there are other songs that do oh. evoke him, but I don't know you would know any of them. I mean, there, um, there's a song of his called Blue Mountain that was uh, on one of the Easy Riders albums, and that always evokes him. He, he had a really good, strong baritone. Uh huh. And know. you have recordings of him? I'm sorry? You have recordings of him? I do. Well, yeah, actually, you can find it on YouTube. Oh, yeah? yeah huh. Blue Mountain, yeah. What did he look like? I'll have to. Was he a handsome? Seems like he had to have been very, very handsome. To write a song like that. <laughs> yeah, he's a big tooth handsome guy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Do you know that song, the Blue Mountain song? I don't. Oh, okay. I don't. Any other songs of his you do? Uh, God. Yeah, memories are made of this. Sometimes I do that. Uh, oh, yes. How about him writing that song, okay? That is mind-blowing. <laughs> I mean, I'm a Dean Martin fanatic. Oh, uh, you know, yeah. he, Dean Martin was, I believe, shared the same birthday as, as my dad. They're both Geminis, and, and I, that's, I think that's why uh, Dean Martin kind of liked that song. Just sort of. It, must, it was a huge hit for Dean Martin, right? Yeah, it was a big hit. Of he was, was my first, like, well, Elvis was first, but then I got really into Dean Martin because my uncle choreographed the Dean Martin TV show and I got to go see him live a few times and of course I was 13 and I just 
I thought he was the hottest thing on earth. Italian men have always uh, just swoon over anyway. He had but, the most wonderful vibrato of, of, because as a rule, I'm not really, I mean, I have a vibrato, but I don't like having a vibrato. I, I, you know, I love having, hearing singers who don't have the, uh, yeah. but, but <laughs> Dean Martin had the most beautiful kind of slippery, yeah, slippery, good word, vibrato. And, and so and, relaxed. Yeah. It, it was, and you know, it wasn't because he was drunk either. Everybody thought it's because he was drunk. He wasn't. <laughs> he yeah. was just a great singer, man. Interpreter, incredible. Would you sing that? I, you know, I, I'm afraid I'm going to mess it up. Oh. But let me think about it. Okay. <laughs> okay, think about it. All right. Um, okay, so you started messing around with music in the mid '60s, and did you like fall after? You, I'm surprised you were a drummer. That's interesting. Say uh, again? I'm surprised you actually started on the drums. That's I did. Huh. That was... Uh, do you remember the Wellingtons on Shindig? The kind of collegiate-looking guys with yes. the sweaters who were, yes. you know, dance like white guys in the yep. background? <laughs> yes, I do. Those were the Wellingtons, and uh, they were originally a folk group that my dad had worked with, or they had... Uh, done some of my dad's songs and befriended my family and one of them was a guy who I've forgotten the name of him a really sweet person but this is a long time ago anyway he had a set of red slingerland drums and uh, he'd never used them so he loaned them to me for two years and that's how I got into playing drums huh and, and do you still play or did you I'd like to, but uh -huh. as you know, it's like Mike says when you know, packing drums don't hold the allure. It's <laughs> <laughs> no. actually a lyric in one of his songs. Packing drums don't hold the allure. When you're 14, you don't think that hard. Oh, that's the greatest line. Because, uh, yeah, I totally relate. Yeah. I, I was a drummer until I was about 18 or 19, and I said, God, there's just, this is, this is not fun packing this stuff out. Yeah. But and I you're the last say, to leave every gig because of it and all that, right? Yeah, you know, you're the last guy out. Yeah. <laughs> but it was but I had a lot of fun playing drums. I don't really know how great I was at it at being a drummer, but um, whether I was a very good one or not, but I, I I enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed playing guitar. Well you have an incredible feel, so you're probably pretty darn good. Thank you. And when did you fall in love with the guitar? It seems like you, the, that song, my other favorite, is Goodbye Guitar, right? Which, of course, oh. I hope you're going to play in a few minutes. But how did you get that nuts about a guitar? Uh, it, um, we had acoustic guitars laying around the house, and they were mostly nylon string guitars. They weren't steel string guitars because... Uh, uh, my sisters were learning, and that was one of the ways to learn easiest was to get a guitar that wasn't going to mess with your fingers. Yeah. So I started um, futzing around with uh, nylon string guitars and uh, gradually just kind of learned more and more, and then made the transition when I was about 18 or 19 from drums to guitar. Mm hmm. And did you start writing songs yet, or were you just playing guitar then? I was just playing guitar, I think. Uh, 
pretty much, yeah, I, I was really drawn into uh, surf music and I loved R&B music and so I, and I was always drawn to instrumentals and still am. I love instrumental music. The Ventures and all that? I'm sorry? The Ventures? Dick yeah, Dale? I liked The Ventures. Uh, I liked uh, the very first record that I ever bought was a um, a single by um, Elmer Bernstein, and it was uh, it was an orchestral uh, instrumental called "Walk on the Wild Side." Oh, and then you might remember Nelson Riddle's version of of the Route sixty six theme. That was sort of like a. Um, it was a hit. It was yeah, a hit. I remember it. Yeah, yeah. And the guitar playing on that was so striking to me and, and and I remember being really taken with it before I, I had even really ever thought about picking up a guitar. I just thought it was so unique and kind of remarkable. <laughs> We're all so quirky and interesting, aren't we? <laughs> so would you play that for me? Goodbye guitar? Sure. And then I want to know more about your love for the guitar because one of the lines in there that is, I always, so beautiful about how you buy it a seat on the airplane is so <laughs> great. He buys his guitar a seat on the airplane to make sure it's safe. Or she. Don't you call it a she? I think that's, yeah, that's yeah. accurate. Sure. <laughs> okay, good. Goodbye, guitar. I want to rise and walk where Moses died She gives me more grief than a man needs If I play that song again It'll bring me to my knees Say what you will If I keep picking it'll never heal I won't touch her neck Anymore. I let her sleep in the back room. I hear ringing through the floor. I'm afraid. The callus on my fingers and the troubles I made. Goodbye, guitar. Goodbye, guitar. Don't try for a backslide Cause we never did get too far Goodbye, guitar Don't cry Cause I wanna rise and walk where Moses died She can't take the cold or the heat when I get on the jet plane, I'll even buy her the seat I ain't lying. Sometimes I think that I heard her cry. There'll come a day she's found someone new. Well, I hope he's got the kind of money that I waste on you. I recall the time. Stay tuned and I lost my mind 
Sorry about the airplane, you know, we're outside because of uh, we have to be six feet apart. So that's why the sounds are there, you know, what can we do? But at least the bird song is, is there also. I love it, and I love your coffee. Oh, you do? Good. Oh, it's working. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it's it. It's working. So, so when did you decide to just be a guitarist? Uh, in New Mexico, when I was, I moved to New Mexico in 1968, and uh, I started hanging out with these uh, draft-dodging Okies, a lot of guys from Oklahoma who were escaping the, uh, the draft, and so uh, a lot of them were musicians. And uh, I started learning a lot about more obscure guitar players and guitar players that were, you know, not conventional, popular guitar players. And I got really, really absorbed into that. I was really fascinated with that. And that's really when my love affair with country music began, too. Hmm. So um, Eliza was going out with a guy um, named David Gilliland, who was from Oklahoma. And he was a boring guitar player. I just stole a lot of what I learned from him. And there was, I was playing in a band with Eliza and David and then another guy. And I was playing drums. And somewhere in, in halfway through the process of that band, I just made the transition from drummer to 
second guitar player. Uh huh. And it was uh, it was a revelation. There were um, because I, I you know I never like so many other really wonderful gu- guitar players. I, I I took no lessons, so um, I sort of it, it, that was the great thing about guitar playing in those days is you just kind of latched onto your own style rather than kind of imitating other people. So that's what happened with me. I was really influenced by my my brother-in-law, but I've. Uh, kind of just decided I wanted to make that transition. Also, I didn't want to load drums out anymore. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Could have been as simple as that. So how many guitars have you owned through the years, do you think? I don't know. God, 100 maybe. 100? How many do you own now, approximately? I think about 18. Yeah? Do you play them all? No, I have my dad's old guitar, mm. and um, and then I have you know various acoustic uh, instruments, and then maybe about seven or eight electric guitars. Do you have a favorite? Yeah, my old ugly K Sizzler guitar, which you've seen me with. I, I, uh, uh, that is really one of the most ugly guitars that you'll <laughs> ever see. And they sort of, that's the way it is with me. I don't really ever seem to find or, or bond with guitars that would be considered to be kind of great Gorgeous. looking. Or, or, or sexy guitars. Yes, They're right. always really, really ugly guitars. <laughs> but that's my favorite one, yeah. Wow. And how, how old is that? The K? Yeah. It's, uh, they only made them for a couple of years, uh, uh, so I think it's maybe 1957 or 58. Oh, it's a nice oldie. It's very old, yeah. Oh, that's why you love it. I guess, it's such a, I I found it in, um, other guitar players would know this, uh, there was a place in Berkeley called Subway Guitars, and the guy who, who ran that who owned it, it was a guy named Fat Dog, and um, <laughs> he had that guitar hanging up on the wall. He, he had a, uh, I mean, he had an endless, he had tens of thousands of guitars. I don't think that's an exaggeration. He was a guitar hoarder. Uh, and uh, that one was hanging in the front room at, at his old shop. And I took it down, and, and I loved the neck on it so much. And I said, I really want this guitar. And he said, I'm Ry Cooter wants that guitar. Oh. And I said, okay, well, I, I can't I can't do anything about that. <laughs> and the person that I was with was a woman named Don Holiday, who uh, ran, ran Slims up in San Francisco, made arrangements uh, like a day later to get me that guitar oh that must have been a thrill it was it was very <laughs> kind of her to do that and i had no i didn't expect that guitar to be my main instrument at all I, it, mm. it's very cheaply made um, but there was just something about it that i bonded with and generally i think as a rule when a guitar player bonds with an instrument then he no matter what it costs yes they try it they just get it <laughs> unless it's you know in the tens of thousands of dollars yeah so, is that it. the guitar by goodbye guitar? Is that about her? 
No, uh, I think the that was sort of a general theme of okay. guitars over the years. Okay, but guitars you guitars I've loved. And yes, and the obscene amount of money that you spend on them, yeah. and, and maybe eighty percent of the time, no matter how much money you put into them, it really didn't make any difference at all. <laughs> <laughs> they are who they are. They are, they are just like we are. Yeah. That reminds me of Willie's guitar, of course, that he's played for so many years. Willie Nelson's guitar, yeah, old Martin. It's such a beautiful sound he gets out of that. Yeah. You can see why he wouldn't, you know, want to play it all the time. That is a very good example, yeah. yeah. That's that he's that's that guitar is in his DNA. Yes. Gosh, I hope they I don't know, I hope someone plays it when he's gone. He's such an American institution. He he and Johnny Cash, Merle Haggard, these people are just so such American gods really. They were they they grew up understanding the consequences of of de- uh, living through the depression, and I think they also were lucky enough to have an an unspoiled landscape that was surrounding them wherever they were, you know, growing up young, and and so that excited and activated their imagination, and that that dynamic is so deeply threatened that it's. It's yes. it's hard to say whether it even will whether it exists anymore. Yeah, maybe in little dribs and drabs here and there. Dribs but and yeah. Drabs, yeah, dribs and drabs. Oh boy. So from what's your trajectory into coming into Hollywood and then getting involved with Lone Justice? Desperation. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you're a founding member of that. No, I, was, I, wasn't, oh. I wasn't a founding member. Uh, I met Maria, I, you know, just like so many other musicians who wanted to make a go of it, I was saying yes to everything that yeah. was offered to me. Because huh. I was living, I mean, for a while I was living in a storage shed. I was sleeping on a, in a, on a couch that was three quarters the size of me. I slept in a... a a bed that was made for like a six-year-old kid, you know, that we were house-sitting. I mean, I really just, you know, was living that sort of life, and um, I met Maria and Ryan at uh, a club in Hollywood that I've forgotten the name of, and I, I thought she was great. I thought her instincts with, with country music and hillbilly music and gospel music were so on the money that um, when Lone Justice got together and asked me to audition, I, I thought, great, this is going to be right up my alley. Mm-hmm. And it really wasn't. It, it, was, uh, <laughs> it wasn't? That's well, funny. No, I'm just being honest. It was. Uh, I, I didn't realize that they were going to be kind of changing the, the direction that they originally started from. And if I had known that, I, I, I wouldn't have been a part of it. Well, sometimes you you can't know, right? They didn't even know, maybe. But they didn't. They were, them. you know, considerably younger than me. Yeah. They they got involved with a, a producer that, to me, was was transparent in his his uh, dislike for for country music. Oh. 
and he was trying to influence them to kind of go in a more contemporary because he he really hated country music. So that was a flag for me. Plus, he was a you know he was just a, the epitome of what you would expect in a kind of self-absorbed Hollywood producer. <laughs> Wish I knew who he was. Jimmy Ivey. Oh, you're gonna say it? Yes. <laughs> you knew that? Oh boy. <clears throat> so how long were you with that band? Which I I actually loved their early stuff. Um, Maria was a sort of I knew her through Brian, her brother, who was a very dear friend of mine. Did you know Brian? Uh, I met him. You know, I met him in the beginning when I first started playing with him. And really. A, sensitive soul oh yeah too sensitive for this world yeah. yeah died so young I was spending a lot of time with him during right before he passed on so that was really rough for me he wrote a beautiful song that Maria did uh, and I can't it was don't pass us away I think that was the name of it he became a Christian fanatic though uh-huh. did you know that well they I think that ran in the family. Yes, his mom was that way too. I would have dinners with them and, uh, you know, listen to their discussions about how the world started 5,000 years ago and dinosaurs didn't exist and all that. And I would just try not to, you know, engage in it. But it, it freaks me out, that kind of thinking. The anti-scientific thinking, you know? It's weird. <laughs> yeah, it's a good Hollywood story. You know, the, the whole experience of that was was a revelation to me because it, the problem with, with Lone Justice really was that there was... The problem really wasn't Jimmy Ivey, it was more or less the, the problem was that the band was, could not unite and, and mm. as a whole band and make their own decisions. They were so young and so they they thought okay the, this manager or this produ- producer or this person knows what's best and let's, let's do what they tell us yeah to they know. just gave it over to the whoever it was yeah and really I think that was the the thread that uh, ran through the band that made it uh, vulnerable to its demise I was always surprised she never went on to become a successful singer. Such a good singer. Yeah, she, yeah. I, I really, in the beginning, you know, I, I always wanted that. I thought it would have been so great if that band had come out of Arkansas or Texas, mm. where it could have explored the options that they, that she had in a way that was not overwhelming, you know. Uh, because she had such wonderful uh, feeling for gospel music. Yes, and, yes, and she, yes, they believed in it. That's for sure. And R and B. Yeah. She could sing the shit out of R and B music, and and of course country music. If they could have evolved in a in a more or less natural way, or without being hammered, because Lone Justice just really got hit hard with with the publicity and overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Those were the days when they tried to make super groups and all that, and didn't right, and just didn't let them find their own way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So, you know, I'd love to hear now. I'd love to hear Late for Jake, which is one of my favorite of your songs, but you, you don't have your electric guitar. So we're going to play it, okay? And have everybody listen to it. One of my favorite. This is where I used to stand in front of Tony and lose my mind on the dance floor. Love it. It's a swoon. It's a swoon fest. Right here in my patio. Uh, <laughs> so, Tony, let's get into X now. Because uh, that people, it's, it's incredible how long you were with that band. Ten years. And how did that happen? That was in 1986. Um, I had been out of Lone Justice for, I guess, about three months. And there was a rumor that they were auditioning and uh, my friend Jimmy Reed gave them my name uh, and I can't remember how that all came about I just went down there and auditioned there were I guess there were they were play, going on with a few different guitar players and I went down there and played and that was it yeah and 10 years of your life was spent with those people yeah, <laughs> ten years. I had I, I was a late comer to their music. I I moved to Los Angeles in eighty one, and I saw what was the documentary on on punk rock in L A. By Pen uh, Penelope Ferris. Hmm. Yes. Uh, yes, I, I saw the decline of Western civilization. The the first one. Uh, when I first moved to Los Angeles in 81 and that was my introduction to them I liked them uh, it was uh, more fun in the new world that kind of got my attention because and then I sort of understood their other influences rather than it just being kind of hardcore punk music mm -hmm. well LA was never thought of as a punk area right and <laughs> I think it sort of was, but uh, when that all started happening in the in the late seventies, um, that was sort of a, a visceral reaction to what was contemporary rock music because it was so indulgent and yeah. kind of silly. 
And so I went up to, I was living in uh, Santa Cruz in, in the late 70s, so I went up and saw bands in San Francisco, and I can't remember who they were, about three or four different punk bands. And there was so much camp in it that that really didn't rock my boat. It was, um, that just wasn't for me. So my reaction to to the kind of over, the rock music overkill was to really just to get into country music. That was my whole, the impetus behind um, taking a break from contemporary rock music was to really fall in love with country music. Mm-hmm. And then later on, you know, in the early 80s when I joined X, then I got it because the state of guitar was was becoming almost electric guitar was almost becoming like a parody in a way so i thought punk rock was was a, a, a an excellent antidote for that uh-huh uh-huh did you like the pistols did you yeah, like any I th- them. yeah i did too yeah real important stuff you know so every once in a while something life-changing comes along in the music and it was like okay it's undeniable <laughs> well he was he was a great singer I mean, I thought he, I liked his singing a lot. It was the same way I liked Exene's singing. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in some ways, I would rather listen to Exene sing than somebody who was, had more uh, vocal ability than her. Right. Yeah, me too. Like Christina Aguilera or someone like that. Yeah. I... I, I, I I don't know. I feel like I'd rather play with musicians who uh, have to do it because if they don't do it, they would go crazy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that sort of the kind of yeah. Well, and I, I, that's why I love DJ and who was the drummer in X. Mm-hmm. Um, he has an incredible mind, but if he didn't have drums, I I would wonder what he would really be like. <laughs> He needed them. He, uh, needed he them. needs them. Yeah. So, so did you tour and and how many records of theirs were you on? Uh, four. Four records. Wow. Yeah. Do you get some good royalties on those? I hope. No, I didn't get any royalties. Well, because I didn't do any of the songwriting. <laughs> I know, but gee, shouldn't everybody always get paid from now on? Every time they're, I don't that's understand one, that. That's one of the great ironies and. Yeah. Hard truths about <laughs> being in the music business. Uh, you had, yes. When I joined with X, Dave was also. Oh, uh, Dave Alvin, yeah. yeah he was Dave in the Alvin band too? The band. I'm sorry? He was actually in the X as yeah, well? Yeah, we were a five piece band. Gosh, I would love to go back in time and see that five that piece fun. X. I never got into them till really late. Uh, I, unfortunately, I've been late to the party with a lot of my favorite people now. Uh-huh. I love X now. I love Tom Petty now. I didn't 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 think a thing about him. I thought he was ripping off Roger McGuinn, which he probably was. But then he got really great, and I didn't know it because I wouldn't listen. <laughs> so I have been late to the party too many times. I have well, to admit I, it. Yeah, I have been too. Yeah. Yeah, I have been for a lot of country artists too. Mm. Acquired taste. Sometimes you have to listen to things if, yeah, a dozen exactly. times before yes. it. Really, kind of sinks in. Who do you who do you like to listen to now? Are you still listening to Merle and? I, uh, who am I listening to now? Uh, uh, James Brown. I've, oh, very I've, cool. 
see James Brown all instrumentals record oh. is is a revelation to me and um, it's, uh, if, if you ever have a chance to listen to that it's a it's a double set and it's all instrumental it's all he did so it's just he the did flames, hundreds of then. instrumentals and uh, a lot of them he played drums on them and and James was sort of like a very he was like Levon Helm he had a very distinct kind of loose beautiful style of playing drums and and, and that was sort of a, I mean I, when I first heard James Brown as, as a boy I was so overwhelmed with I was shocked to hear such a powerful music that it, that it existed right I'm sorry it was, you were shocked that it even existed yeah, I've been like that That's with right. some music. Yeah, I was shocked that it existed. I, yeah. I, uh, that you know, when I was talking about m- my father and folk music, and that was kind of over over here, and and I loved it. I really I loved it as part of growing up and everything. But when I heard James over here, or or I can Tina Turner, and um, that was transcendent. That, yeah. that was really the power of, of of music for me. I know, as I love, I love it so much too. You know, it still moves I know me so you much. Do. <laughs> yeah, I know you do. I'm notorious for loving music. <laughs> but I, you also, I love it when you don't like a band too, because I've seen it when you don't like a, a musician. Yeah. And you're wicked. Uh, I am. <laughs> well, I don't want to be wicked to any musician, really, because no, they're out there doing what they love. No. You know, we all have our tastes. I try not to be vitriolic or anything. So I would love to know what you're up to now. I'm finishing this instrumental record, and then I've been working with a uh, a woman, Deanne Stillman, who's written a a fair number of books. uh, She's written a book called 29 Palms, which is a very dark story. It's a true story of two young teenagers who were uh, brutally murdered in Joshua Tree, not Joshua Tree, uh, 29 Palms, sorry. Huh, I would love to read that. I'm, I'm the, that's the kind of books I love, crime, oh, really uh, into it. She's a, this is like reading a, a 21st century version of In Cold Blood. Oh, okay. And I okay. think she's in, in league with that, with Capote in that same aspect. Okay. She's a born writer. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really love her writing stuff, so I was really flattered that she asked me to write the music for this play, and so I'm four songs into it, and I'll play you one now. I would love like. to hear it. I would love to hear something new. Yay! Great. So this is a song called The Big Red Six. follows a man with the bruises of love barely healed the road she goes down to another prison town the fate of blood is soon to be sealed in a room dimly lit women will sit 
and speak of the trails and tricks through any open door a table holds court under the big red six you better look up if you can't go further down there's a laugh rising from the ground for the women tumbleweeds the road sometimes leads under a big red six Angel taps the door, her slippers on the floor, with a pit bull as little as a fist. Or money if you have any, a foil and a twenty, there's favors too many to list. And the TV will light a lonely motel night, and crickets hide under the bricks. And make an evening sound till the sun goes down For the women of the big red six You better look up if you can't go further down There's a laugh rising from the ground For the women tumbleweeds The road sometimes leads under a big red six A new Tony Gilkison song. So the play is going to be local? She's been doing it at the, at the uh, theater in Santa Monica, but since oh. the advent of the yes. quarantine, I really don't know what the status of it is. In fact, I've got a... <laughs> I'm supposed to write uh, two new songs, and I've been remiss in that, but... Well, you have a little patient. time. You have a little time, too. Yeah. Yeah. How have you been dealing with the little extra time we have? Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm doing okay because I'm with my wife and daughter, and yeah. they help keep me sane. But I, I, I don't like it when I gravitate towards the things that drain me. Like if uh, I'm trying to reduce the cell phone time, I'm trying to reduce the mm. news time, watching the freaking news. Yeah. Um, but I'm kind of hopelessly addicted to all that stuff too. So uh, same here. I've been doing my Zoom classes, and you know, and I watch MSNBC nonstop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you and I are lucky that we have backyards because I think yes. Oh, I know. So lucky. So lucky. So lucky. Yeah. Makes a difference. It's about to get pretty hot. I just recently discovered the Reseda Park. Well, rediscovered. That's where I used to make out with 
Bobby Martini when I was 15, but I've recently rediscovered it. And they've, there's now a duck pond there, duck and geese, right on Victory and Reseda. Didn't you, did you post something about that? Yes, I did recently yeah. because I was so thrilled to see wildlife in Reseda. <laughs> it was so thrilling. So yeah. I now go there almost every night, every evening, and walk around for half an hour with my weights, and it's really given me some sanity. It, yeah, it. Uh, that makes a difference. It's the same in Monrovia. I will do a walk, and uh, I'd say maybe 20, 30% of the time I'll have an encounter with either a bear oh. or a fox. In, in Monrovia? Yeah. Wow. Oh, or I want to come visit. Maybe I'll just drive out there and sit on your patio and visit. Is it wide enough? Well, I wish you would. Far enough away that we can... Of course. Yeah, yeah. We, we can be six we both feet. Have a, yeah, if we're... Same size house. So. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going I'd to love do to that. I am. I promise you, I'm going to do that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Tony. Pamela, I'm, thank I'm, you. you know. I'm such a huge fan of yours, and well, I've always loved you. Always will. It was instantaneous. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Worthless is my love for you, dear. my dear friend Tony Gilkison with fabulous stories about the music scene in LA. He has been around everywhere. You know, that was just the tip of the iceberg for Tony, but I really appreciate him being here with me. And I thank you all for listening as usual. This is Miss Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party, and you can find me here all the time. Please listen to all of my different podcasts with all my fabulous people and listen to Pantheon Podcasts, all 40 of us, okay? So thank you again. Goodbye, dolls. been listening to Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party, produced by Aaron Alden and Christian Swain. All sound design by Jerry Danielson and Busy Signal Studios. Find Miss Pamela at Pamela DeBar on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. 
Find all the Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you find great podcasts. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Pantheon Podcasts. Rock and Roll Archaeology on Instagram and Pantheon Pods on Twitter. <laughs>